Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I first met Curtis Burns at the 2019 NEAEP Symposium, where he taught a few sessions on a variety of topics, everything from glue-on composite shoeing, tips to improve your hoof care business, and even therapeutic strategies for dwarf minis. I knew at that point I wanted to interview him for the podcast. Many people know him as a racehorse and performance horse farrier who has worked on horses such as Triple Crown winner Justify, and also from his Polyflex composite horseshoes. I asked him a few questions about gluing, about thoroughbred feet, and we talked for a bit about how he got into hoof care. So why don't we get started, and can you tell us how you ended up in hoof care? Well, I kind of grew up around it. My dad, I wouldn't say was like a full-blown blacksmith or farrier, but we had our own horses, and he would do some other horses for other people occasionally and things uh, Kind of where we come from out in the country in upstate Minnesota, it was like there, there at, when I was growing up, there wasn't like a farrier. If you had a horse, you took care of it yourself. Anyway, I just, like I said, I grew up around it, but it was the last thing I ever really anticipated, you know, being a blacksmith or a farrier. I was very small for my age and I got actually introduced to the horse racing through a friend and, and I, and they drug me off to the racetrack and uh, I think I was, uh, I was probably around 14 or so, and I went there and spent some time. I ended up going back a little bit later that next spring, and I think I was probably 15 then, and I never went home. I never finished school. Um, I just uh, started working on the track, and I became a jockey. And about the time that I started really earning a living, (laughs) uh, I started growing. Now, I always joke around that I ate myself out of a job. Anyway, um, as I got too big, I was like kind of the next stage of where I would go and be possibly a trainer. So that's kind of what was my goal. And I I got the opportunity to work as an assistant trainer for several different really notable and and very well-known trainers. And I ended up getting my own horses eventually. And in the process of having my own horses, I started becoming more and more frustrated with the, the blacksmiths or farrier work. And... I always, you know, I grew up around it, as I said. So the funny thing was, is it was normal for me to have a shoeing box with a few hand tools in it. And if I say, for instance, if I had a horse that even when I was an assistant trainer, if we had a shoe off that maybe got pulled off in the evening or or step one off or whatever, I could just fix it. I didn't have to have the farrier come by. So anyway, Little by little, I was getting so frustrated that I was like, you know, I I would have the blacksmith do the horse. I'd look at it a week or two later and I wasn't happy with it. I'd pull the shoe off of it and I'd kind of retrim it and put the shoe back on. Well, pretty soon I ended up with, I remember where there was a really distinctive uh, time that I had a really pretty good horse and he was the most correct horse I ever had in my life. And I was coming back from the racetrack with some other horses and he was there getting his bath from being out in the earlier set and he was towing in and i'm like that horse is the most correct horse i've ever seen why is he standing like that and i went over and looked at him and he was just really really out of balance and again i took the shoes off of him and leveled him up reshot him and that was the last time i ever paid a farrier 
from then on, I started doing my own. And the next thing you know is I started having trainers asking me who was doing your horses or who's shoeing your horses, man, your feet look great. I was like, I do it myself. And little by little, I started having people asking me if I could help them. And I really wasn't supposed to. And it was kind of a, a weird time that I came up in the farrier work. It's kind of the, there was no more union anymore, but they wanted to pretend that there was. And so there was a lot of controversy on, on my starting out shearing horses. And uh, it's a, that's a whole episode in itself that I, I won't go down. But anyway, so little by little, I started getting more people wanting me to shoe horses for them. And I was actually getting paid. <laughs> and uh, we're training horses. I would train them. And then you'd pray to God your clients would pay you. I just, you know, really, it just kind of kept sneaking up on me and became more and more um, a part of my everyday thing. And it found me. I didn't find it, to be quite honest with you. That's really cool. And I had no idea that it was almost just assumed that you would be able to take care of your own horse's feet where you were where you were growing up. I mean, I, I grew up just, you know, knowing the farrier showed up X amount of weeks and they took care of it. Right. So that's really cool. Uh, so then from there, how did you end up creating the Polyflex composite shoes? Well, I was very fortunate, you know, as I got my career going, a lot of people knew me from, again, you know, riding and then training horses. And so when the shoeing side of it started up, I got lucky enough to, you know, where a lot of those clients that are a lot of trainers actually gave me a chance because maybe I had some sort of relationship with them from the past. And so I got to work for some good people. And there was a young guy that was getting started and a young lady that had gotten married. They were both very close friends of mine. And I started working for them as they started their training career. And we ended up doing really well. And, and they were quite a well-known family in the industry, uh, the Humphreys. And they breed a lot of very, very good horses. So anyway, their daughter was training and her husband, and so that I'm working for. Well, they had ended up having such a good year that her father said, listen, you know, a lot of times what they would do is they would keep only a handful of the fillies that they bred for breeding purposes. They Some of the better bred ones, really good confirmation. And the rest of them would go through the sales, you know, to generate income for the farm and stuff and keep everything going. So uh, she had had such a successful year that year. He says, listen, I'm going to let you pick out one horse this year, Philly, of any of the crop that we've made. You get first call of whatever horse you want. You've done so well this year. And she picked out a lovely, well-bred mare named Once Around. And she brought her in and, we're, you know, as, as she was coming along, getting ready to run, it looked like she chose well because she was just uh, really seemed to have some talent. She was fast and could seem like she could manage distance. And so uh, we're getting close to running her. And one morning at Mammoth Park, uh, she was riding her herself and a loose horse, a rider had fallen off one of the horses that was on the track. And it ran right past her as she was trying to get off the track to get away from it. She knew the horse was coming. And she was like, took a deep breath, like, oh, thank God it didn't run into me. Because it just literally brushed her as it went off the track. But as she was trying to ride the horse back to her barn, she looked back to see where that horse was. And there was a trail of blood. And uh, what she had done is she had stepped on herself. The other horse had actually stepped on the side of her foot. And literally, it looked like somebody had chopped the side of her foot right off with a hatchet. And it was the damnedest thing. I 
the only time that she was comfortable and sound was without a shoe on. And, you know, it was healing up. We started trying to do a little training with her. So I put a shoe on her and within a day or two, she would be lame. So anyway, we kept stopping on her. We'd train her a little bit barefoot, but then her foot was wearing out a little too fast. And then, so we'd have to stop on her, let her foot kind of catch up. And so anyway, it just so happened that I was working with a blacksmith that I had hired to help me because I had a lot of work that year. And his name was Joe Schrage, and he had worked for a guy. His name is Rigney, I believe is, uh, was his last name. And he had tried to develop a horseshoe that was, he would take a regular racing plate and encapsulate it with polyurethane. So it was something he had played around with in the early days. And this guy had worked with him and helped him. So I was telling him about this Philly one day when we were driving to Ocala to do a bunch of uh, horses. And I said, I wish I could just like create a a little plastic shoe or something that I could glue on there that's, you know, moves with the foot or whatever, just simulates the foot as much as possible, just to where it could wear out instead of her foot. And he said, well, I know a little bit about polyurethane. So maybe let's see what we can do. So we ended up making a mold of a racing plate uh, that was shaped to her foot. And we used a silicone to create a mold. And we ordered some polyurethane and we got it. We mixed it up and we poured into the cavity and I glued it on her. And sure as hell, it worked. And she would wear that thing out and I'd make another one. And the next thing you know is her foot had developed and started growing. Well, it didn't fit anymore. And I was like, oh, hell, don't tell me that. Like every time that I got to put a shoe on her, I got to go through the whole process of making a mold and doing all this stuff. And so... As we were sitting there, I was just like, well, what if I made another one and I just put like a little wire inside of it? All I needed to do is be able to open it up. And I said, maybe that'd be enough to hold the shape while I glue it on. And there's my invention. <laughs> and uh, so the crazy part of it is, is she went on to be a multiple stakes winner. And when she retired, I never did another one for probably... I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years. I just put the molds on the side and, you know, didn't think much of it. And then I uh, ended up with another horse that I was working for, for Todd Pletcher, that had these really weird feet and just was, she was really, really fast. But every time she would do any speed work, she would get really sore and lame in her feet. So I tried a few different tries here and there with her and... I finally was kind of given up and I told the trainer about what I had done this one particular time when I had found a horse that just no matter what I put on her just wasn't comfortable except for this. And they said, well, what do we got to lose? So um, I went through the process, made a pair of shoes for her and glued them on. And so uh, a couple of days later, I seen the trainer and I asked him how she was doing. He said, I don't think they really worked. He said, and so I, I was like, well, you know, what are you going to do? I can't win every battle, right? So about a month later, he, he hollers at me and he said, hey, we got to get that Philly shot. And I said, you told me they didn't work. And he says, oh, man, about a week after you put them on, she started getting better and better and better. And he says, she, we're doing her speed work. She's coming back perfect afterward. And she's had some of the fastest morning works that anybody's had on the racetrack for the day. So um, 
I made up another pair and we did her and she went on to win several races. And at that point I realized lightning had struck twice, you know, and I said, you know, I got to start kind of reaching in and doing this more often, see what happens, where it goes. So little by little, I started doing a few more of them and it was just unbelievable the percentage of horses that were winning. And I had one blacksmith that accused me that I would only put the shoes on a horse that was going to win. And I told him, I said, listen, if I was that good a handicapper, I wouldn't bother shoeing horses. <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, it was kind of funny how things happen, but it's really been amazing. The couple things that have, you know, really been a huge impact. And at the time you didn't really realize they were. But one of them was, is that I had helped out a couple that I know here in New York that had a broodmare that was really in bad shape. She had laminitis. She was in full. This, you know, springtime, she was, you know, uh, just had gotten on the grass too much. And so they, they asked me if there was any way I could help her. And so I went over and I, I made a pair of shoes for her and, you know, glued them on. And, you know, direct glue is usually not the way that I go with laminated horses, but I just, uh, I did it and I did a pour and pad in her and we got her stable and we ended up doing her a few months and she got really good and we ended up having a full, everything went great. And as a thank you, they had some connections with some people that, I don't know if they owned the Blood Horse magazine or, or what connection they had, but anyway, they called me up one day and we said, we have, we have something for you. We want you to talk to somebody and they want to do an article for you about you and your shoes. And it was, um, they have a, they, I don't know if they still do it or whatever, but they would have a page in the thing about people in the industry. So they'd kind of highlight a particular person. So they did one on me and they talked about, you know, my career as a uh, rider and a trainer and then, you know, went into shoeing and now I was, you know, doing the shoe and, the crazy high percentage of winners. So anyway, the next thing you know is uh, I got a phone call uh, from Blood Horse wondering if it was okay to give my number out to somebody that had reached out to them. I said, yeah. So it ended up being a trainer in California named Mike Harrington. And he called me up and said, you know, hey, I'd like to buy a pair of those shoes. And I said, no, you know, I, they're a little different to put on. And I says, I just do it myself. And he said, well, would you come to California? And uh, my best friend lived out there. And I hadn't seen him in quite a while. So I was like, sure, paid vacation to go see my buddy, you know. So uh, I uh, jumped on a plane. And I remember I took, uh, at the time, the way that I was trying to make the molds, I, I didn't have numbers. So all I had was letters. So I was making a small, medium, and a large, and an extra large, I think, by this time. And so I put a pair of each in my suitcase and my tools and off to California I went. I got there the evening before, got up early in the morning, went in and met the trainer. I did the horse. And by the end of training hours, we had taken the horse out and watched him train. And as we were standing there, the horse was just moving beautiful. And he said, oh my God, he said, I cannot believe that a pair of shoes can make that big a difference in that you know you're talking literally you know hours here and as we were talking about it off to the side was a trainer named richard mandela which is you know like one of the kings of racing in in 
California. And he overheard it. And he's a little bit of a foot guru as well. His father was a farrier and he likes to tinker with some of the hoof problems uh, that he has in his barn himself. And so he comes over and starts kind of quizzing me about it a little. And he wants to buy shoes. And I told him the same thing. And he says, well, listen, he said, when you're done with Mr. Harrington today, he says, that's my barn right across over there. He says, you come see me. So I walk back with him to the barn, watch the horse get his bath and walk off sound afterward and he pulled out good and everything. So I felt comfortable leaving. So I went over and seen Mr. Mandela and, and uh, he said, I'd like to try this. And so I had a few pair of shoes left and he, uh, he said, you know, what do you, what do you use them for? And I says, well, the biggest thing that I've had success with on the racetrack is sore heels. So he said, well, I'm going to show you some horses that I'm struggling with foot-wise you evaluate them and figure out what size shoes you got. If you got any of these horses that'll fit, you know, let's, let's do a, a couple. So anyway, I ended up doing, I believe, I believe it was two horses for him. It could have been three that day. Uh, and I literally got done with the last horse and had to run back and jump straight on a plane to go back home. Wow. And 30 days later, both trainers wanted me to come back. Wow. And it started a process of me going to California on a monthly basis for probably about a, a year. And then on one particular trip, I had just been there, and I was at the time I was doing a, a couple of really, really top horses, uh, a mare named Rivers Prayer that was undefeated on the grass, and I think she ended up winning about eight in a row. And uh, another really good filly named Shaggy Maine. And so happened that Bob Bafford was up at the rail one morning and he was complaining about this horse that he was looking at watching train about how talented she was, but her feet are always killing her. And so a trainer named Don Chatlos said to him, well, why don't you have Curtis shoot the horse for you and see if he can fix it? He was like, who's Curtis? So he gave him my number and he called me up that day and asked me if I'd shoot his horse. And I said, well, I said, I was just there, you know, like a week ago, week, week and a half ago. And I says, you know, I, I won't be back for another three weeks. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, I, I want you to come shoot this horse. He said, you charge me what you have to charge me, but get on a plane and be here tomorrow. So I figured, you know, it, it's Bob Bafford. Maybe I should go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I packed my stuff up and I went and I said, you know what? I'm going to bring some extra shoes with me just in case something else pops up. So sure enough, I ended up doing as many horses on that trip as I did on my usual monthly trip. So now for the next three years, I used to go to California every other week. Wow. And I look at it now and I, I like, I don't know how I did it. I literally used to live in an airport. I did four days of work out there. At the time, they still had Hollywood Park. So I would work usually two days at Santa Anita and then two days at Hollywood Park, and then come home. You know, and then on my off week, a lot of times I would be going to like maybe New Orleans or Kentucky, depending on the time of year, to do horses for like people like Steve Asmussen and people like that were, that were clients of mine. So it was just literally pretty much on a weekly basis, I was on a plane going somewhere to shoot horses. And I remember getting to the point where I had already quit most of my jobs and I still had one remaining job. And I remember I had to make a decision. Do I keep killing myself or do I dedicate myself to this project? But I mean, it was scary. It was really scary because yeah. 
even though you're working for top, top trainers, they're not going to let you just walk away and quit and then like, oh, welcome back in open arms. They've had to make new arrangements. Uh, you know, am I going to quit again? So I just, I didn't take it for granted that I'd be able to just walk back into my job. So I took it very seriously on leaving. So I remember the day that I told Christophe Clement that, you know, the, at the end of the month was going to be my last day. And I went home and I was like on the couch in the fetal position. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what have I done? You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm like going to go chasing around uh, doing this for, you know, plastic horseshoes, you know? And it, at the time, no matter how much success I was having, everybody told me I was wrong. Either wrong about, you know, application, wrong about the idea of having a flexible shoe, um, trying to get the shoe ruled off. There was a lot of jealousy, so they were trying to get the shoe ruled off that gave horses an unfair advantage because it, you know, I, I don't know. It was just, it was always something. And again, that's a, that's a whole nother story that I, you know, can tell. So that's uh, kind of where it ended up, how I really got the shoe going. And, you know, pretty soon my friends wanted some and, you know, I, you know, hey, just do me a favor, come watch me do a couple pair or at least a pair and see kind of my process. And so that way you have success with it. And then pretty soon their friends wanted some. And, you know, they kind of got to the point where I couldn't do this anymore one-on-ones. But yet because of the flexibility, it was very important that they were glued well. Uh, you could kind of get a false sense of ability doing a, a rigid shoe because if there was any part of the glue that was still attached your shoe was still on right not the case with you know a, a flexible shoe they can come off like a retread tire just like on your horse trailer they can do a lot of damage coming off if it doesn't come off clean and, and good you know so uh, i ended up doing a little video showing how to do it and i would like okay like here's a dvd watch this and then watch that and then i'll, I'll give you the shoes so that was kind of how I did it. And everybody thought I was crazy that I was being so protective. And all those people that I know from the early, early days are still my clients. And they're also the ones that now tell me that if it wasn't for the way that I did it, they said you would have never lasted because we would have been slapping them on. They'd have been falling off. And all anybody would have heard about is how they didn't work. Yeah. And so it was a slow process growing, but it was also probably the best thing that I ever did. Still to this day, I sell directly to the farriers because I get a lot of feedback and I get a lot of questions when they do have failures. And you kind of create this networking of, uh, and I don't, I'm not the one that comes up with all the ideas. A lot of times my clients do. And, you know, they come back to me and like, hey, I, you know, I had a horse that was, uh, you know, I had side bone or had this or that. And then I'm like, I had so much success that when I ran into another one, I did another one. It seems to be a trend that I'm really having success with this. And so, you know, just sharing the information has helped me as a manufacturer of shoes, like trying to go down different paths. And my relationship with Scott Morrison, you know, has been uh, long and, and good. And, uh, you know, we make the Morrison open roller and we have we've had a patent on that for a long time. And so it's just, it's been interesting how it's gone and developed and, you know, as I said that, looking back on it, I'm amazed sometimes when you're actually living in amongst this, you know, it's easy to kind of not realize what you've done or, you know, like a lot of times it's not fun. It's, uh, you know, it's so challenging and a lot of people don't believe in it still to this day. And you have a lot of naysayers and, oh, metal's the only thing, you know, the only way to go. And it upsets me too that a lot of these shoeing schools 
really kind of plant that seed in these kids' heads. You know, they have desire to go out and try to learn, and then they, you know, kind of get brainwashed that it's handmaids or nothing, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And there's a there's a lot of options out there, and a lot more than just mine. And, and again, that's a that's an important thing. As I was talking about my application, whatever product it is, really see if you can find out from the manufacturer or the people involved with it what's the best way to do this particular project. Don't try to drag information from one product to another. Use their method. If you want to put your own twists and turns on it after because you think you could do better, well, that's that's up to you. But at least give the product a fair shake at doing it the way they've told you it's the best way to do it. I think a lot of us, me included, can have a little anxiety about glue-on shoes. Often there's a lot of precision that needs to go into the process to make it successful with a lot of eyes on the horse and the shoes to see how they're going to work out. I asked Curtis about ways we can feel confident about our gluing process and ensure these last on the foot for as long as we want them to. Yeah, and I think a lot of the trepidation, like you were talking about, of trying something new or trying a glue-on shoe or trying a composite glue-on shoe especially is that fear of failure. And I've had that too. I mean, I do glue-ons, but even, you know, (laughs) even coming up to a new glue-on, I get a little nervous, you know. And I love that you were sending out those DVD or the videos and making sure that people were doing it the right way. Right. Could you go into like maybe some of your tips or tricks for getting a good glue adhesion and getting the shoe to stay on a full cycle? Well, I'll tell you what I do is uh, on my website, we have, uh, you can go to it two different ways, polyflexhorseshoes.com or, or noanvil.com. And there's a tab there it's at the top support. And then at the bottom of that is the application videos. And so really what I tried to do, and Rachel, my assistant, I'm sure you, you know of her, a lot of people out there do. Um, she's been with me for several years now. I've taught her. And so she had never been taught by anybody else. She had never done any hoof care. You know, she has had owned horses her whole life. But what I kind of discovered as I was teaching her is that it kind of got overwhelming for me to keep throwing everything at her, you know? And, you know, I was just like throwing mud on the wall and finding out what would stick. So what I started doing is I would start teaching her one thing to each time we did the horses that that was the only thing I kind of let her do. And that, and so she learned one skill at a time. And that's kind of what we tried to do is we broke it down. And I, I can't remember exactly the, the number of them, but I think it's five kind of individual processes of working on the foot. And there, each one of those is very achievable. And that's kind of what I wanted to do is I wanted to break it down. Like, don't look at it as, as a whole picture. Like, okay, step one, I got this. I can do that. You know what I mean? Like, that's not that big a deal. And then, you know, move on to the next one. And that's kind of how we've tried to put this video together uh, to be able to teach that. And all I can say is prep, prep, prep. I see people doing a lot of prepping to the shoe, drilling holes in it, doing all this stuff to get the glue to adhere to the shoe. I honestly, in the thousands of these that I've put on, I honestly do not ever remember the glue failing at all from the, the shoe. And never, never, not once. And I don't drill a bunch of holes in it. And, you know, I, I do prep it. And there's and the reason for that is that we sand them all when they're, after they're made to have them where they're all have a course 
area for you to glue to and to where they're exactly the right heights and all this stuff. But the thing of it is, is that there can still be contaminants of mold release and things like that on them. So what I do when I'm in the field, I do prep the shoe, put a fresh grind on it with my Dremel on a certain particular bit that helps kind of roughen it up and creates more surface area for the glue to bond to. But that's all you need to do. You don't need to drill a lot of holes and things like that. And I tell people, quit wasting your time on the shoe, spend your time on the foot. And I think the other thing that I see as a problem is that people, uh, especially for farriers that have been in business for a long time that are nailing, tend to leave foot that should be taken away. And what I'm meaning by that is exfoliating sole. You're direct gluing. If you're direct gluing to something that's going to exfoliate in a, in a week or two, well, guess what? You're going to lose your shoe in a week or two or have a very compromised foot. So you have to learn to maybe trim more aggressively when you're gluing than what you would do if you're nailing. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of farriers that have been in it for a long time to get their head around, that you got to get rid of that. If it doesn't have good integrity, take it off. And I find myself sometimes questioning, like, say, you know, you'll get one of those hollow quarters that, you know, just kind of doesn't want to ever go away and you're tr struggling with it. But I'll look at the wall and it's super thin and it's got movement to it just on, with your thumb. And I'm like, do I leave that or do I take it? You know, and then I think to myself, literally a lot of the horses that I, I get called in on are horses that have been you know, been shoe pullers, for instance. Well, half their foot's missing, and I managed to, you know, glue them on and, and end up with a really healthy foot at the end of this thing. Why am I leaving this junk behind and, you know, not getting rid of it? So even, like I said, I question myself. And, you know, you say you question, are, are they going to make it the full cycle? I do the same thing. <laughs> you know, and I've done thousands of them. And, the consequences for me are, are sometimes very big. I mean, I've done, you know, I know you're aware of it, but I've done some of the, you know, best horses in literally in modern times. And, you know, you're talking about millions of dollars on the line. You know, I mean, uh, Justify, when he finished the Triple Crown, was sold for $75 million. Right. I mean, those are numbers that are just, uh, you know, just hard to imagine. And, you know, you you lose sleep working on those kind of horses. What a lot of people don't understand, they they look at what I do and they think, oh man, I'm envious. I you know I'm, I'm jealous of that guy. Or, you know, to me, it's um, the thing that weighs heavy on me is that it takes such a huge team of people to make these horses at this level perform and do their job and be successful. But if any part of what I do goes wrong i stopped the entire parade and uh, a lot of people don't realize that you know i'm slowly trying to you know get myself in a position where i, I don't ever see myself not wanting to shoe horses um because i it really to me helps me in my manufacturing and maybe a new shoe design or 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 whatever you know i feel like if i'm going to give you lessons i need to have the same problem you have you know, and so uh, that's why I can never see myself not shoeing horses. I say if it's how to deal with a client, you know, how to apply the shoe, you know, be careful always of the fact that if there's anybody that's on the team that isn't on board with it, it almost always goes really badly because it's like they almost go out of their way to make sure it doesn't work well.
I've just learned over the years that I've learned to say no. And it's very empowering when you finally get to that place where you can say no. And, you know, and I don't do it to be a smart ass. I do it because I've already been down that road and it never goes well. You know, why would I want to do that to myself? You know, why, you know, why am I going to go down that road where I'm just going to be aggravated with myself and wish I wouldn't have done it. And so, um, you know, learn, learn to say no is a big thing. It'll be a helpful thing for you as you go along. Yeah. And I remember you talked about that at the last in-person NEAP symposium. And that was a big takeaway for me too. Yeah. No, just be careful and, you know, listen to your gut. You know what I mean? Like uh, instinctive things. Uh, the more you do these kind of, any, I think anything, if you're painting a picture or if you're, you know, shooing a horse or there's an instinctive thing that you, you when you pick, pick up that brush to put it to the canvas and you like, there's just a little too much paint on there. And I know this is going to go bad if I keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the same thing happens when you're shooing. I've been in the middle of actually doing a horse and something tells me it's the way the horse is standing or this or that. Like, you know, I did him last time. I don't remember this. You know, like, why is it? And it's like somewhere in your back of your head, you, you have to learn to listen to this voice that's telling you like, dude, you've been in this place before and it, you kept going and it didn't go well, you know? Yeah. So stop and uh, rethink it. You know, what's another possibility? And um, if, when I do that, that's when I have the most success. Letting my instinct take over when, I, when it's screaming at me. Yeah. So that's an it's a important thing to listen to for sure. Um, and actually, this is, I feel like it's sort of changing topics, but along those same lines, I've had, I, I told some people that I board with, actually, that I was going to be talking with you. And we have a lot of off-the-track thoroughbreds um, at my yes. barn. One of the big questions, you know, they see all, a lot of these horses come off the track, and their hoof tends to be this, like, longer toe, underrun heel. And they were wondering if, you know, are longer toes actually something that is used in racing for a benefit in terms of traction or impulsion or something? Or is that a result of them starting young or being shod so young? Yeah, no, actually, I'm really glad you bring this up. I'll kind of tell a story too, actually, that kind of depicts this, you know, thing that you're asking about. So one of them is the breed. They just tend to be a very, very light-footed horse. And as we bred them over the years, I swear their feet have even gotten lighter than they were when I first started. One of the things that I always kind of said that helped separate me from a lot of the other farriers when I was shoeing full time was that I, I was lucky I had a mentor named Jim Bays, and he would only use a size three race nail. And I mean, if you ever see a size three race nail, it's like a toothpick. I mean, it's so tiny and thin, but it, it really made a difference in you know, the quality of foot that I was coming back to. And I always said, when you're building a house, you have two main people. You have a, a framer and you have a finished carpenter. Well, if you had a finished carpenter frame the house up for you, it'd be the squarest, most perfect frame you ever had in your life. But it'd probably take you five times as long and you know a lot more costly to have it made as opposed to vice versa, having the framing guy come in and do your kitchen cabinets, you'd probably be a little disappointed, you know? So um, that was part of it. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that a lot of times these thoroughbreds used to be such a huge part of the hunter classes and things like that. 
that most of the show farriers are just not used to shoeing horses with this light of foot. They're still wanting to, you know, put keg shoes on them and, you know, drive the same size nail that they're doing these warm bloods with and things like that. And they struggle with them. Their feet fall apart. And they hate, you know, like, oh, I hate them. You know, it's like, uh, honestly, if you learn to shoe them, it's not that bad. You know, try some different types of shoes, different nails. As far as the confirmation of the foot, one of the things that it's part of their job, you have to understand that the horses come in, they're at the track, they're pretty much in the majority of the day. If anything, they maybe walk a little bit in the afternoon, but they go out in the morning and they go out and they immediately just start jogging and warming up and go into their gallop and they're on that ground and it just kind of pounds their feet. And, you know, you really see this, especially on the better ones, like, it takes a lot of work a lot of times to keep really good foot on a really top, top horse with the demands that are put on that foot. And they tend to, you know, the breed itself tend to just be low-heeled horses. You're not going to shoe a quarter horse the same way or an, an Arabian. A great example is, is that years ago, I was around a really top Arabian racehorse trainer. And he used to get so frustrated with the farriers because they would constantly be in the mindset of trimming them like the normal thoroughbred. Sometimes if the thoroughbred gets too high of heels, he's going to end up with suspensory problems with the speeds that they go, or they're going to get interference problems. So they have a tendency of taking some of that heel away. Well, if you end up doing that on a lot of Arabian racehorses, they end up with bowed tendons. You, you know, you can't, you can't rob that horse of all his heel. And I think it's so important to learn and look at these horses as not just horses, but as what breed they are. I had at one time, I, I shot a, a, a very, very good mare, a race mare that was undefeated on the grass. And she was bought for a lot of money from the stable and the new connections that wanted to race her for the remainder of the year. And then she was going to go on to be a broodmare. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to keep all the same people involved with her through the remainder of the season, you know, the veterinarian, the farrier, all of us to kind of come along with her. So anyway, um, it come time for her to be shot. They asked me to come. And, well, when I got there, the, the trainer broke out his computer and started explaining to me that, you know, he wanted, you know, the left front to, you know, be changed, you know, five degrees and one, you know, the other one this many degrees. I looked at him and I said, sir, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't mean to be hard to get along with here, but I'm, I'm not doing that. And I says, that's just not, you know, I know that that will definitely line her bony column up and make it look perfect. But I said, I'm not doing that because that's not her. That's not the way she's built. That's not the way she's performed. She does have a negative Palmer angle, but I says, if you look at a lot of, you know, the, one of the reasons why a lot of horses are turf horses and not dirt horses is because of the conformation of their foot. And that, that's a tendency. And I'm, I'm not going to create this perfect bony column for you because it's not going to work with her, her. And so I refused to do her. And so they brought in a farrier slash veterinarian to uh, do her. And they couldn't wait to send me the x-rays to show me the difference. And I was like, well, that's great. You know, I wish you guys luck. You know, I, I'm not rooting against you here. I'm just not comfortable doing that. And so anyway, she ran really that she did actually she didn't beat a horse and she was last and so they tried one more time and she was last so they came back to me and they said okay we need you to come back and sure and i said well you're gonna let me sure the way that she wants to be shot well no we you know i said you don't you don't understand it's not 
it's not who's doing her, it's what you're doing to her. And this past year, I was called in on a retired dressage horse for a very, very big client of mine who, you know, sponsors a lot of Olympic horses and things like that. And she has her personal horse that she used to compete on is retired. And, you know, the same kind of thing. They were trying to create this perfect bony column in this horse. And I'm looking at him and I said, well, one, the health of his foot is just awful. And I mean, he's just lame. I mean, he can't, he can't even walk. And so I said, you know, you got to quit worrying about angles of his feet and worry about, you know, I've seen cardboard boxes that have more integrity than this horse's foot does. And, you know, I said, honestly, I said, looking at his confirmation and the way that he's made, I said, I don't, I don't know if this horse has ever had a positive palmer angle in his life. I said, it's unfortunate that's his confirmation, but that's, that's his. He owns that, you know, that's his. And, um, she paid a lot of money to get me on a plane to go up there. And basically I took the shoes out, everything off of them and, and left him barefoot. And every day he got better. Wow. And, you know, he hasn't went without some hiccups here and there over the summer as he's, you know, been on grass and, he, you know, he's an older horse. And, but for the most part, he's quite comfortable and he's getting around and he's doing well. Uh, I get into some battles uh, periodically with veterinarians that really want a horse balanced perfectly in the, their x-rays. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm looking at a horse that's like got a twisted leg on it, toes in really bad or toes out really bad. A while back, I had this happen where, you know, a farrier that I worked closely with, Tim Cable, was made to shoe this horse level. The horse had been winning and winning and winning. And now suddenly they had to get involved and they got to take x-rays, got to make everything, make sure everything's all right. And he has one right foot that the confirmation of that leg is, you know, not pretty. And I was actually, it was bad enough for when they were buying the horse that I was called in to evaluate him to see what I thought before they actually purchased him. And I told him, I says, you know, I watched the horse go and I said, man, he's a beautiful mover. He's sound. He's perfect. But I says, all I can tell you is don't try fixing him. He is what he is. And if you don't fix him, I think you're going to be fine. And he was. But then, as I said, when he became quite successful, now all of a sudden we have to see if we can make him better. And I try to, when I evaluate a horse, I try to look at their confirmation. And I try to look at the distortions in the foot. What's the foot telling me? And what, what's the confirmation in this leg and this horse's body? And I'll decide what I'm wanting to do and what I wish I could do. And sometimes I kind of split the difference. You know, like, I'd like to do this, but I know I can't, I don't, I got to be careful not to overdo it. And I think that, that just common sense approach of splitting the difference is what helps me be successful with a lot of those type of horses. You know, and, and going back to, you know, the low heel, long toes, uh, I remember being asked to go to Calder Racetrack, which is, which is hard to believe that the, just a matter of like, you know, half an hour further south would make a difference. But in South Florida, when you kind of get in that area, it's funny how the humidity levels are different. And also the track was different. It's a very sandy track. And I remember being brought over there. And you think you see low-heeled, long-toed horses. You should have seen what you norm what was normal for this racetrack called a racetrack. I remember the first time I went over there and I'm looking at all these horses. I said, I am going to be the new golden child at this racetrack. <laughs> you know, I can fix a lot of these. Well, I made them look really good, but they couldn't walk for two days. Oh, God. And that was the thing, though, is, is that I, you had to 
realized that 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 track was very sandy and it just pounded their heels down and that the the biggest part of their foot that was really able to hold up to the the track was the front you know two-thirds of their foot and if you tried to take that away from them and create this better looking foot you just robbed them of the of the essential thing that they needed to be able to handle being on that racetrack and it's really unusual to see that you'll find like even going from the east coast to the west coast with the much drier humidities you'll see a little differences in the tendencies of what we have to do and what we can do ensuring those horses to keep them comfortable and performing well so it's it's easy to condemn what you see when the horse comes in but you got to understand that he's now no longer under the workload or the same kind of pressures or asking as what he was when he was doing his job so that's something that you really got to got to take into consideration i believe with these uh, thoroughbreds that you take on hey you know do what you can to you know back start backing their feet up and you know getting their heels to start to develop more and stuff like that but you got to realize that they're not going out there and going you know 25 30 miles an hour you know on a pretty regular basis over a pretty solid hard surface as well and so um you know you're you're hacking them around you're riding them you're maybe on the grasses you're on kinder surfaces and they're just not being asked for the same thing i I remember a trainer complaining about how he always had to bring you know this one particular horse back and um, you know put her back together and then as soon as i got her really healthy and doing good they send her to the trainer and she comes back in a handbasket again I said, yeah, but she's she's won like four million dollars while that guy's been, you know, working with her. You know, it's easy for you to put her back together when, you know, she's here eating grass, you know. I'm sure he could keep her sound and happy too if he was just having her go outside and eat grass. Right. So, you know, like I said, I'm not uh, you just be careful about, you know, condemning everything uh, and, and understanding the work that these sources are are doing when they're doing their job. And, you know, I've done a lot of them, and they, they love their job. And not all of them, but there's some horses that just don't do well being pasture horses either, run up and down the fence, and stress themselves to death. And so, you know, it's they're all different, and they're all different mentally. And it's easy for people to kind of create an idea of what's ideal or what should be done with these horses. But, you know, they're, they're all individual animals, and I'm one of the fortunate ones that I, I was able to branch out and get into a lot of different disciplines. And again, I think by doing that, different breeds, different disciplines, uh, you learn to be a little uh, less critical about what the last guy did, you know, because right. uh, never assume the guy in front of you was an idiot. Right. <laughs> I'm about as far removed as the, from the race track world as anyone could be. I mean, I see a lot of off the track thoroughbreds, but I'm not in the, the racing world. But I love everything that you're saying about something that I think about every single day is how am I serving this horse? What's more important, their dynamic balance and their performance or the appearance and their static balance? You know, throw those two up in the air and see which one is is going to be serving the horse better. And it's it's hard. And it's something that I still struggle with. You know, the feet that we are putting out are our business cards, so to speak. Yes. So, so people look at them and, and think about us in our work because of how the feet look. Even if that horse is super sound and doing really well, a lot of times they just go back to how the feet look. So it's it's hard, you know, sometimes the horse needs a different looking foot than our ideal to perform well. <laughs> it, you're absolutely right. And something that I do and preach a lot to do is, is especially dealing with really, really high end performance horses is that I get frustrated, as I said, about, you know, being 
told, you know, you know, okay, this horse is two millimeters low on the medial heel. You know what I mean? And they, they want you to, you know, level this thing up. And, but meanwhile, they'll turn around and they'll prescribe, you know, a suspensory lateral branch shoe to be put on it, where when he's in soft ground, he's completely diving his medial heel into the ground and very ununiform ways according to the ground. It'd be one thing if you had absolutely pristine surface that you're going over to where you'd have an example of like, you know, a controlled deforming or load into the ground. But when you're going over ground that horses have already been going on, and to me, it's, it's very, very frustrating. I think that we, we lose a lot of common sense and, you know, use, use common sense. You know, and in educating yourself, like that, don't just learn just the anatomy of foot. Learn the breed. You know, learn what the typical breed type of foot is. You know, like I see a lot of quarter horses get in trouble when people take too much heel off them. You know, I've I've fixed a lot of them by stacking their heels way up. Where if I did that to most other discipline or breeds, their suspensories would be killing them. But in a quarter horse, they love it. You know, so it's just, again, like I said, just be very careful about uh, getting into a, a routine of your fixes, you know, like, hey, what does this horse do for a living? What's his breed? But, you know, ask some questions. And the more questions you ask, a lot of times, the more you're going to learn about the whole picture of your business in general. So, yeah. Yeah. And and this has been such an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for being willing to do it. And I did want to ask you about your work um, with dwarf minis, but I feel like that could be a whole other episode. So uh, maybe we can plan for that at some point too. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back to work and um, it was a pleasure. And I am so sorry that it's taken me so long and I'm uh, really happy that you're doing well. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. All right. Sounds good. And I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Have All a right. good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.